been an enjoyable study of the life of Abraham, the man of faith, a man that is mentioned throughout Scripture as an example of faith. And it's been a, an encouraging study. And as we come here, this chapter, to the end of his life, we recognize that he left quite a legacy. He's an important man in, in the history of the Bible. And he had an impact on those around us. But the real impact of Abraham's life is how he was used by God. And that's what's important, isn't it? It's one thing for friends, neighbors, and families to write nice things in our epitaph or on our tombstone. But the important thing is what we are before God. That's really what's important. Because we don't answer to a church, to clergy, to a pastor, to an organization, even to our spouses, though at times we do. Ultimately, we answer to God, do we not? It is him we're going to stand before and answer for how we responded to his love letter, his, the word of God, the Bible. We're going to answer to him for how we lived our lives as we go, as we go to glory and enjoy his eternal presence. And the first question he's going to ask, obviously, to, to mankind is, have you responded to my gift of love? The Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God gave us all in order to rescue and redeem us. And that's the first question these people are going to answer. What do you think of Christ? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? It's going to determine our eternal destiny, is it not? And it's a very important question because in reality, the gospel is something to be obeyed. God tells us that when Jesus comes in flaming fire to take vengeance, he's going to take vengeance on those who know not God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't God's optional way of living. You know, hey, you can live this way, that way, the world's way, or, or, or take the highway, whatever. God says, no, this is the answer for life. You've been infected and affected by sin, and you are separated from God for all eternity, and this is God's remedy. God's rescue was the cross of Christ, as he laid on us, on him, the iniquity of us all, so that he might, God might extend, extend to us forgiveness and cleansing and the assurance of eternal life. So that's the first question he's going to ask. The second question, which for believers we know we may, be, may answer at the judgment seat of Christ, is have you lived faithfully? That's the real question. It's not going to matter how much money is in our portfolio, how many, uh, how many objectives we accomplished, how many promotions we secured, what kind of reputation we left before the world. What's important is we lived faithfully. Have we been faithful to the Word of God? Have we walked with God? Have we, have we trusted God? I like the verse in James 2 that speaks of Abraham, which says this, in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. What an amazing title, isn't it? The friend of God. Now, Abraham wasn't a perfect man. He was a flawed man. We've read of his mistakes, and there's probably many that were not recorded for us in scripture. But God uses people in spite of themselves, but he uses those who have a bent or a tendency to want to honor God, respect God, and serve God. And that's and that was the foundation of Abraham's life, and it's a lesson we learn of faith. To be, and what a wonderful thing that, if that could be inscribed on our headstone someday, if there was such a thing. He was called a friend of God. That's, that's, that's where God wants us all to be. This isn't some ideal that is unachievable. This is where God expects us to be, walking that harmony with God to enjoy him each and every day. And that's, that, that statement alone makes God so personal, doesn't it, to us? And he ought to be personal each and every day. Well, here we have in chapter 25 these last events of Abraham's life. And what we see is God blesses above and beyond. You know, the story could have ended with the fulfillment of the promise of Isaac. 
you know, all the years of anticipation, all that led up to that, the birth of Isaac. But here, after Sarah's passing, we find that Abraham marries again. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 1, Keturah was a concubine, but God gave him more children. And really, they were miracle children. And we see six more children listed here he, he gave to Abraham and Keturah. But these were impossible children. Not that they were impossible to raise in their demeanor. But remember, Abraham was beyond childbearing years. Isaac was a miracle, the Bible tells us. And these, this is several years after that. God blesses above and beyond in giving Abraham six more children. I can imagine the first time Keturah said, I'm pregnant. And Abraham said, what? Again? More? And more, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. Miracle children. But I believe God was keeping a promise. If you flip, flip back to Genesis 17, for just for a moment, and let's, let's remember what God promised to Abraham in his covenant promise in chapter 17. Verse 4, he says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Many nations. It wasn't just the fact that he was going to make of Isaac a great nation, but he was going to be the father of many nations. And so what we see back in chapter 25 is these six sons of Abraham who do know and, and did become great nations before God. So Abraham is not only the father of, of Isaac and Ishmael, but six more children of whom God made great nations. And we see in this passage that Abraham gave to his children in verse 6. He gave to those sons the, the, the generous gifts as he viewed him as their son. And so God blesses Abraham ge generously. And it kind of reminds me of the story of Job. After all Job went through and the trials he went through and everything he lost, the Bible tells us at the end of Job's life, he had more than he had at the beginning. And God loves to bless his children and give to his children, though at times he brings us through uh, toil and trial, does he not? Well, then the interesting thing here, we see here that... In verse 6, that Abraham sent these sons away. He sent them eastward, according to verse 6, um, away from Isaac, his son. And that's mentioned specifically for a reason. Because once again, we have to remember that Isaac was the heir. And Abraham could see before his, before his, after, that after his death, there would be competition for heirship. And I imagine that amongst people, that we actually compete over our inheritance. Abraham foresaw that, but he knew the significance of the fact that God had told him that through Isaac his seed would be called in Genesis 21, 12. That verse is quoted in Romans 9, verse 7, or Hebrews 11, 18. It's, it's, and it's tremendously important. Abraham recognized that the covenant promises, the significant turning point in history, really, when God established a nation Israel, was going to be fulfilled through Isaac. And that's why he's, Abraham's such an important person in human and biblical history. Romans 9, 5 says this, speaking of Israel, he says, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And we recognize that when God promised Abraham a seed that would bless the whole world, that was, that was speaking of Christ. And that's the nation through whom Christ came. Galatians 3, 14 says this, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so the blessing of Abraham has come upon you and I in the person of Christ. It is a Jewish family that has, God had chose to, to administer his covenants. 
It is the Jewish family that God chose to communicate his word. It is a Jewish family that God has chosen to provide the Savior. And that's why this is so significant. And Abraham recognized the significance of maintaining Isaac as the heir. Therefore, he sent away his sons to the countries of the east. He provided for them. He blessed them. He wasn't against them. He just isolated Isaac, his son, to be the certain heir to carry on God's covenant relationship with his people. Very, very significant in history. You know, and that's one reason you might say as well why Satan throughout throughout history has sought to destroy the Jewish race. Anti-Semitism has always existed, exists today. It's going to climax under the Antichrist in the great tribulation period to come as Satan ever ceases to thwart God's plans because he recognized God has worked through the Jewish people. And that's why we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, do we not? Well, then we come here to this verse 7 and we find the passing of Abraham. Buried in a cave that he had purchased, the one piece of ground he had owned, alongside Sarah, his first wife. And I like the phrase here that he says he was gathered to his people. Nice way to put it, isn't it? Poetic way to put it. He's speaking of gathered to those who had already gone on to heaven, whether it's his own family or his, his, his faith family. And that's really what death is for a believer in reality. It's a regathering. It's a reuniting, isn't it? And though there's always tragedy at the loss for those who are left behind, it's a regathering to our people, believers. That's what we look forward to. And it's because Abraham believed God, as we, in the verse we mentioned earlier, that he had the assurance of eternal glory and that this Bible could clear, that the Bible could clearly state that he was regathered to his people in glory. And that's the assurance you and I can have today as well, and it's important to note that. In fact, turn over to 1 John chapter 5 for a moment, please. Let's just flip over there. Because God uses Abraham as an example of simple faith, faith alone, and the promise of God. And mankind, we know, has complicated that message. Mankind is ever inserting works into that message. Human effort, deservedness, faithfulness, or whatever. And yet, we recognize that Abraham simply believed God. It's just a wonderfully short statement. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. Notice it was a righteousness that was counted to him. It was attributed to him. It was given to him. It was not a righteousness which he had earned. It was a righteousness which God gave as the basis of faith. And that's where we find forgiveness. Verse 9 of 1 John 5 says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And this Bible should be believable because it's the witness of God. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has that witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Simple, isn't it? Either, either you believe in the Son of God or you do not believe his testimony concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That's just a wonderful statement. The Bible likes to use the word gift, given, because that's what salvation is. That's what attaining righteousness is. And righteousness that is given to us in Christ equips us for heaven. And it goes on in a simple verse, in verse 12, it says, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, God keeps the question simple. Do you have the Son? Have you believed the witness? Have you placed your faith in Him? 
And there's some people who will sit in church, Bible teaching churches, gospel preaching churches all their life, and never respond to that simple message of faith in Christ. God, God forever lays before them for years and years and years the offer of a free gift of salvation. And they just neglect it. They don't take it seriously. They don't think it's important. They're too caught up in the problems of life. Where God simply wants to save them and rescue them from hell and sin in their lives. And it is accomplished through this testimony that God has given in his word that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God has not life. And the next verse is the verse of assurance. These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you might continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And so the assurance comes from, comes from placing our faith in Christ. And the reason we are assured, the reason we have that assurance is because of what the Son has accomplished. Jesus paid, paid for all of our sin. If you look in, back in chapter 2, it tells us, he, in the beginning of the chapter, it says he was the propitiation for our sins in verse 2 of chapter 2. He was a satisfactory payment. Hebrew tells us he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. You know, people, we cannot become fami familiar enough with this message because we're going to run into people who claim to be Christians, who claim to trust Christ, but they're going to intermingle works into that program, even, even though the Bible says it's not by works that any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. And so salvation is by faith alone, and that's the beauty of the simplicity of this passage. You either have the Son or you don't. Either you believe God's testimony or you do not. And those who have believed can know, not because they're faithful or remain faithful or because they deserve it, but it's because Jesus so completely paid for our sins on the cross that God could promise to us forgiveness. He could give to us righteousness. And therefore, we are assured based on this adequacy and the sufficiency of the complete payment of sin on the cross and on the faithfulness of God to keep the promise he's made. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all shall be saved. It's that simple and it's that simplicity that excludes man's efforts that brings us assurance because it's not based upon our piece of the puzzle, having our thumb in the pie. It's based simply upon what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so Abraham was gathered to his people. He was assured of that, and you and I can be assured of that, that when we leave this life, it is really a regathering to our people. We can be assured, we can know because of the sufficiency of the work of Christ. As you go back to Genesis 25, I also, it, it seems significant when he mentions of Abraham that he lived a full life. In verse Eight, it says, Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Abraham lived a good old age full of years. That's just another beautiful way to describe a successful life, isn't it? A good life. What a beautiful way. To, he's a good old age and he was full of years. And I believe God's describing this, the success of the faithfulness of the man of Abraham. Because Abraham had walked with God. And when you define success, we need to be, be sure what our basis of success is, isn't it? Because the world has a whole different viewpoint of success than what the Bible has. The, the, the world describes success in terms of financial success, political success, corporate success, accomplishing our goals, being recognized for our accomplishments, being promoted, whatever. 
It's all about these natural pursuits that we, you, you and I are engaged in. They're an important part of our lives. But what's important to God is not what we accomplish or not what we gain, but how we got there, isn't it? It's how we lived along the way. Did we include God in our lives? Did we live faithfully to him? You know, you can take a lot of shortcuts to success and take the world's way to success and get there, but does it, does it honor God? Churches can, can build, their, build their numbers in churches if that's their objective, if they want to find ways to attract and, and entertain people outside of the appeal of the love of Christ. You can depart from the biblical model and you can gain numbers, but are we doing God's will, God's work, God's way? That's why we study the Bible. And success in the eyes of God is simply to walk with him. Remember in both 2 John and 3 John, John mentions this, that I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. That was the Apostle John, one of the foundational leaders of the church. He said his greatest joy is to find his children walking in truth. Doesn't, man, doesn't matter if they're a garbage man or a president. The important thing is, are we walking in the truth of God's word? It doesn't matter if we've got $100,000 in the bank or we're living paycheck to paycheck, pinching pennies. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Are we walking with God? It doesn't matter if we got everything accomplished this summer we want to get accomplished. I know I'm never going to. I don't know about the rest of you. That doesn't matter. Are we walking with God? And if that's what's important, we have to ask ourselves, where are we putting our focus in life? And so we have this wonderful example of Abraham. They lived a good old age and full of years because he walked with God. And I want to turn this morning over to Hebrews chapter 11 because Hebrews chapter 11 leaves a commentary on the life of Abraham and Sarah, people of faith. And I think there's some lessons here, and we refer to this passage from time to time throughout our study, but I think we want to draw out some faith lessons from this chapter as this portion and verses 8 through 12 describe their journey of faith. And so let's read this. Follow along Hebrews 11, verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in a land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah also, herself also received strength and conceived seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the in sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. I think there are several key words here that describe different aspects of the journey of faith. In verse 8, we see, first of all, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Obedience. That's the first, first thing mentioned here. He obeyed his call to move to the land of promise, to follow God, and it is an important aspect of our lives. These are simple principles in the walk of faith. Obeying has, a, has the idea of surrendering to God's leading and God's authority in our lives, does it not? And they did so with not, without knowing what tomorrow holds. We kind of sang that this morning, didn't we? We don't know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And God leads us sometimes into, down paths of uncertainty because sometimes God leading involves having to let go. If we're going to surrender to God, that means we've got to let go of control of our lives. 
And that leaves some things, some things, you know, uncertain. You know, we've got these balls we're juggling and trying to keep them all in the air to keep life going, and all of a sudden we've got to take... We've got to reel in our hands and leave them in God's. That's what faith requires. To submit to the authority of God, to surrender to the will of God. And it's simple because it simply says obey. And that's what we expect our children to do. We don't, we, when we tell or give our children an order, we don't ask them, they don't ask them to say why, when, do I have to, can it wait? We just say no, just do what I say. It's simple, isn't it? But it is challenging to us, especially when God's will might risk my will in the matter. Surrender is, a, is, a, is an important step for a believer to recognize that God is able to direct my life and his ways are best. And so by faith, Abraham obeyed. The first step in faith is simply to surrender to the authority of God in our lives, authority we find in his word and his ability to direct us in it. The second thing we see in verse 9 is, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise. But notice this land of promise was a foreign country. He dwelt in tents. That means he was a wanderer and a pilgrim and a stranger. He was living for the Lord in a foreign land while he, while he waited upon God. And so he, he, he sought to accomplish God's will in the meantime. And we see saw throughout the life of Abraham that he lived counter to the culture. He didn't want to intermingle with them. He didn't want to be part of their, of, of their worship and part of their lives. He didn't want to intermarry. And that means he lived as a foreigner. He was willing to live as a foreigner. He dwelt amongst them. Doesn't mean he lived like them. It kind of sounds like our calling, doesn't it? As Christians. He dwelt by faith. He lived differently by faith. He he was waiting for what God had for him, and he served God in the meantime, but he lived a distinct life, distinctly different from the lost. It is so easy in our lives to assimilate to the culture, to adopt worldly values and perspectives and practices in life, because many of those are seemingly amoral or, or neither here nor there, but we have to remember the world's perspective does not include the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the direction of the Holy Spirit. And God expects us to dwell by faith, living each moment according to his will, willing to live as set apart to the Lord. You know, this mentality really helps us to remember that we're here on a mission. That's what it means. That's what this passage means. He dwelt in a foreign land. He was there on a mission. Now, his mission was to, was to enjoy the establishment of the promises God had given him. And that's what God wants us to do, to enjoy his promises and live differently and to be a light to the world around us. And that's something we do by faith. When we don't have their same values, their same priorities, their same perspectives. And when you live differently than the world, they, they notice. The world notices and I remember throughout the years in my work life, in my secular work life, how closely the world watches the believer to see if you're real. Are you really different? Or are you going to live just like me? They watch it. And I heard over and over again throughout the years that of people that were very put out or discouraged by Christians who did not live their convictions. They didn't live differently. They might go to church once in a while, might even pray before a meal. 
but they assimilated, often assimilate to the culture. By faith, he dwelt amongst them as a child of God, as a person of God, as the chosen of God. It's a simple thing to do. Just follow the word of God, but challenging because we so often want to just go with the flow in our culture, don't, do we not? That's why it's important for us to take each step as we dwell by faith. That's the ongoing walk of faith in considering, is this God's will for me? Is this really the priority God would have for me? Is this a perspective God would have for me? It's, it's a, it is a principle, a simple principle in the walk of faith, living for the Lord in a foreign land. Next thing we see in verse 10 is he waited. Part of that dwelling there was waiting. It's an anticipation for the city who's, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He, he knew there was a glorious future awaiting Israel. Now we know these promises have not yet been fully fulfilled. That's kind of what we're talking about a little bit on Wednesday night in our study of prophecy. They're still waiting for the promises to be fully and completely fulfilled. But Abraham lived in light of that. He anticipated that and had an effect on how he lived. And he served God faithfully in, in anticipation of that, which helped him to stay unattached to this life while he enjoyed the blessings of God here. But that's what God holds before us. We're to be looking for the, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Philippians 3.20 tells us that we're anticipation, anticipating our Savior who's going to come from heaven and change our mortal bodies. It's an anticipation you and I are to live with, and God holds, holds before us as a church the imminent return of Christ to help keep us focused and on track and remember that we're here on a mission and we're just waiting on the Lord. While we dwell here accomplishing His will, carrying out His purposes, serving Him in a foreign land, we do so with the anticipation of a glorious future ahead. And what we're doing here is we're on a fishing expedition to bring as many with us as we can, to put as many sinners on the stringer of our fishing expedition to drag them with us to heaven so they can have the same glorious future you and I have here. I recently was visiting with a young believer who's becoming aware of that responsibility and privilege we have to be included in God's fishing program, God's rescue programs, God's deliverance program. And he said, why else are we here? That was so refreshing. Simple childlike faith of a young believer. If that's the case, <laughs> what else do we have to live for? And that's what it means to dwell amongst them as we wait upon tomorrow. It seems simple. But you know what? We don't like waiting, do we? And we often lose sight of that, of our Savior's coming. The fourth principle here, we see a faith, I believe, is that Sarah received strength. In verse 11. Now, she needed to receive strength when she was beyond childbearing years in order to bear a child, but she received strength. Which means that as we walk by faith, ability is of the Lord. In fact, all of life is of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. And Sarah had to tap into the well of God's resources in order to accomplish his will, which was at that day impossible. But she received strength from God, which tells us that God is anxious to give and provide all that we need to carry out life purposes. He loves to keep us on track, to strengthen us and empower us if we're willing to do his will. 
If we've gone back to the first step, if we've, if we surrendered to him, God's just delighted as he rubs his hands together to help, help us along that path. He's delighted to give that strength that we need, even when life seems impossible or God's calling seems unreasonable to us. God provides strength. So on one hand, we have God's aspect of that. On the other hand, is she look to him. You and I are to tap into that will. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Jesus told us that, you know, speaking of the Spirit of God, that out of our lives, our bellies should flow rivers of living water. We're, we have an abundant life to live here in a foreign land as we accomplish God's will. But it's as we depend upon him, as we rely upon him, as we look to him. And so in every aspect of the faith, we have our object, don't we? Our object is God. We surrender to God. We wait upon God. We live daily by faith and dependence upon God. And here we draw all of life from God. We receive strength for life. Now that might represent the wisdom we need, maybe at times comfort, maybe at times strength, ability. It comes from the Lord. That's where faith looks. Faith does not look inward. It looks upward, does it not? And again, it's a simple principle. Simple. Seems simple when you read it on paper. But in everyday life, it's challenging because we think we got the tiger by the tail. Or like the little ones like to say, me do it myself. We like to think we have life under control. And it's a risk to go back to that first step of surrendering to God so that we have to depend upon him in everyday life. I think what we see... In Abraham and Sarah's example, there's two simple ingredients to the walk of faith, isn't it? Because there's two sides of the equation, if I can put it that way. First of all, God is able. When we see God for who he is, we recognize that he is able. In fact, much more able than we are to direct our lives, isn't he? It's kind of foolish to think that, you know, we got it under control. We find out very quickly that the tiger tends to whip the tail around and we don't have it under control. Remember Moses? Moses was reluctant to serve God, to the call God put before him to, to rescue Israel. He thought, who, me, what? You know, I'm, I'm a fugitive there. What did God do to him to encourage him? He told him who he was. He says, tell him, I am sent you. That's all you need. I am God's name. The self-existent one, the one who transcends creation, the one who is ruler over all. And what God was doing was impressing on Moses his greatness, reminding him of who he was and his ability. And yes, Moses, if you go in your own strength, you're going to come back with your tail between your legs. Again, if you rely upon the I am, if you remember who I am, you can go boldly and confidently knowing that God is going to care and direct. You know, we sing the song, you know, we don't know about tomorrow. We're not going to borrow from tomorrow's troubles and all that stuff in that song. But we do. Unless we remember the I am. You're here in Hebrews 11. Look back at verse 6, where I think we find the New Testament equivalent to the I am, our great God. Verse 6 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him, please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And in my opinion, is should be capitalized in your Bible, just like the I am is capitalized in your Bible, because I think it's the same equivalent. He is. We must believe he is. He is what? He is who? He is where? 
He is God. That's the essence of faith. That's that side of the equation to remember that he is the I am. And back in Hebrews 11, let me, excuse me, verse 11, it says, the reason Abraham, excuse me, Sarah could receive strength because she judged him faithful who had promised. He recognized who he was. She considered him faithful to his promises because he is the I am. If you flip with me over to Romans chapter 4, where we find another lengthy commentary on the life of Abraham, using him as an example. Romans chapter 4 mentions this concept as well. Verse we've mentioned before, verse 20, says, He did not waver, Abraham, that is, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He was able to perform. He's able to care. He's able to provide. He's able to direct our lives if we would simply entrust ourselves to him. The other aspect we see here as well of that formula, not only do we see God is able, but then it comes on to the question, will I trust him? Well, I make that decision to trust him. It's a volitional decision. It's not something that's intended for us to run to when we get into trouble and in a panic and, a, and a get a back ourselves into a corner, and all of a sudden we can say, Lord, help me. No, we need that every day. As I speak at Bible camp the next, during senior week, one of the first questions I'm going to address to the kids is, do you need help? We're going to talk about deliverance. Do you need help? Do you really need help? Do we need help as Christians? We need to see that. We're not sufficient of ourselves. As we make a decision that God is able, he is the one who can be trusted. He's able to perform what he says. And so we need to be convinced. And our faith is strengthened when we realize that God is the God of the impossible. If you back up here to verse 17, it says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, he was in that presence, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's our God. He created this world from nothing. Who contrary to hope, and hope believed, that was Abraham and Sarah but before they bore Isaac, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was promised, so shall your descendants be. And being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. You see, faith is strengthened when we realize God is the God of the impossible. Faith endures in hopeless situations, impossible situations, and faith is not limited by natural phenomena. We often, so often, approach life through a natural perspective. So well, if I do this, this is going to happen, or this can happen. Or... And God's not limited by our limitations, is he? And faith recognizes that. And that's why, in some ways, surrendering to the authority of God is really a reckless abandon to see what God can do. And I think that one reason the church today is so far removed from the early church of the book of Acts is because of our lack of faith. We see what God can do in our lives if we're willing to trust him. And so, there, and so believe, believing him is a deliberate choice to trust in God. What's interesting as we read this, 
is faith, trust. Seems simple. This is a simple solution. It's an easy message to preach. It's obvious in the scriptures. We embrace the concept by faith, but in everyday life, not so much. Why? What's the difference? Well, maybe we're not spending enough time seeing God. Romans 10, 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're strengthened when we see God. We get to know God. We recognize his sovereign work in our lives as he cares for us, keeping his promises. We see him in the beauty of scriptures as he works faithfully to accomplish his purposes. We see the glory and greatness of an all-powerful God who is for us. And then we see the bigness of God, our almighty God, the greatness of his power, the depths of his wisdom, and the beauty of his love and of his mercy and his grace that he extends towards me. We see that he is for me. We see that he's given me unfailing promises. All these things strengthen our faith as we spend time with him. You know, in the life of Abraham, we put a lot of focus on the man of faith, the person of faith, the example he is to us. But really what the story of Abraham directs us to is the God of our faith, the object of our faith, the God himself. He is the faithful one. Abraham's not necessarily saying, be like me. He's saying, trust in the same God. Get to know the same God that I got to know. Allow God to impress you with his person so that you might trust in his word. If you flip back to Hebrews 11 quickly, that's the question that we're going to answer as we stand before God someday, going back to the beginning of our message. Have we lived faithfully? Have we trusted a God? It's really silly when we don't, isn't it? We have so much at resource at our disposal, a God who is for us, who promises to uphold us and carry us and walk with us. So what's going to be written of us someday? And I think here in Hebrews 11, we find what should be the normal epitaph of every believer. As we go on in our passage in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, and this should include us as we trust the Lord. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come, they would have op- had had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's simple, isn't it? Keep eternity's values in view and approach life with that biblical perspective as we get to know the greatness of our God. Develop a heavenly mindset that we might trust the God and watch him work in us individually and together as a church family. Let's pray. Father, we know we so often can limit or hinder at least uh, the possibilities of what you would do in our lives. And Father, when we fail to walk by faith, to trust you, We fail to keep our purpose in mind and and, and live each day with that perspective. Father, we often get too attached to this earth and too encumbered with its cares. But Father, may through it all we see you. Help us to see the goodness and greatness of our God and the God we can entrust ourselves to, a God we can look to, a God who will use us in spite of ourselves in your mercy and a God who will empower us to accomplish impossible things if it would be your will as you direct in our lives. May we be people of faith. May we be surrendered to you and wait upon you to trust you each and every day. May we dwell here as foreigners in this land on a mission to accomplish your purposes. And Father, we just pray that you would be glorified. So take the things we've learned today, Father. Challenge and instruct our hearts, we pray now, and accomplish your will in our lives. In Jesus' name.